Hi, this is Glenn Hughes, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to another week of Focus on Metal in our second episode in our month or so long Focus on some classic stuff. Hope you enjoyed our kickoff episode last week, talking to drummer Andy V. Galleon about classic Death Angel albums, The Ultraviolence, and Frolic Through the Park. And this week, we welcome aboard guitarist Tony Bruno. Tony has uh, recorded with Danger Danger, done some recording and touring with Joan Jett. He's been the uh, the MD for Enrique Iglesias for, uh, for years, but then again, that's not very metal. And he is currently one of the guys appearing in Rocktopia. But we got him on this week for one particular reason, and that is to talk about his role in the band Soraya. And Soraya put out a couple albums in 1989. They put out their self-titled one. And then in 91, they put out When the Blackbird Sings. And uh, since then, we really haven't heard a hell of a lot from the band. And uh, this week, we have Tony on board to talk all about what, uh, what went down, what the history of the band was, all that stuff. So there's definitely a lot of uh, information in Richie and Tony's talk this week. So with that in mind, just like a lot of our classic weeks, won't be any music this episode, but in that way, we can uh, make sure that everybody gets to hear everything that uh, that Tony and Richie discuss. So with that in mind, why don't we get this show started and turn it over to Richie and guitarist Tony Bruno. Yo. Hey, is that Tony? That is me. Hi, Tony. Richie here from Focus on Metal. Nice to talk to you again. You too, man. How you doing? I'm good. So I got you on to talk about Soraya. Um, do you get a lot of people asking you about that band? I do, yeah. Um Mostly, it's funny, mostly on Facebook. Because uh, the weird thing about the band is, you know, we, we put out two records, but we only, we did a U.S. tour, we only toured the U.K. That was it when it comes to Europe. Okay. And uh, and so many people, like, for years, it's been like, you know, I mean, you guys never played here, you never played there. I'm like, I'd love to, you know, I'm like, I don't know. Uh, who the hell knows? Hmm. But um, bad management. <laughs> 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 I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll get into some of that. Um, yeah. In 2010, Soraya were supposed to play a show in the UK. Were you supposed to be involved in that? Uh, yeah, I was kind of, I was kind of spearheading the whole thing. Do you know uh, Kieran? No, Kieran Doggan. He's the uh, he's he's, um, he's one of you Irish folk. He's um, he was the promoter, and he and I were kind of really, you know, I wouldn't say putting the whole thing together. He had the whole uh, festival, but. He and I were working on the Soraya thing together, and it came super close. But I will tell you, it was a little bit of a uh, it was a disappointment. I it basically came down to I don't think Sandy was. Uh, this is the mild version. I don't think she was in the right time in her life. She's got five kids, you know. Uh-huh. Um, I don't think she was in the right place in her life to pick up and you know go across the pond. She was into it, but then when push came to shove. It seemed like uh, all of a sudden she's like, I got to bring, you know, um, I got to bring my kids with me. And I got to, I'm like, well, there's no way they're going to pay for that. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a metal festival. It's not like it's not the eighties. <laughs> mm. <laughs> there's no budgets running around anymore. Yeah. Was it only for the one show? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you would have had to do all that rehearsal, get everything together just to play one gig. Well, yeah. I mean, that would have been the downside of it, but the upside would have been, would have do all that rehearsal and, you know, get to see each other again. Yeah, yeah. So, Tony, let's let's go back a little bit before you joined the band. Um, what were your circumstances surrounding you leaving Danger Danger? Well, the funny thing is, I was never really in Danger Danger as a band member. Um, this is the weird thing. It's a pretty convoluted story, but if you got a minute, mm-hmm. yeah, go <laughs> I'll ahead. You, I'll give you the real version. Yeah. So, I was doing the demos with Soraya, and this is before we had a deal. And um, we finished the demos, got the record deal. Uh, Sandy and Greg were signed to David Sonnenberg as a manager. And he also owned their publishing. It was kind of a, you know, old school, the way things were done a long time ago. Uh-huh. Um, he had their publishing. 
he didn't but he didn't manage me so he asked you know to own my publishing and i was like um no because why would i do that and you know it was kind of he kept pushing it and pushing and pushing it and i just you know he was started to drive a wedge between myself and sandy not so much greg because greg was always pretty easygoing dude but then i got offered a publishing deal from warner chapel and i took it and that kind of sparked this whole thing then they got really pissed Sandy and Greg, not they, they were pissed at me, but to be honest with you, they, I think they were pissed at themselves for signing a deal with Sonnenberg. Yeah. And I was just, and I, you know, I was very nice about it. I'm like, look, you know, just because you guys signed this deal with him doesn't mean I should. It's like, I, I don't know what to tell you. You made a deal. It got you where you are. Um, well, there's not much I can say about it. I said, look at it this way. You and Greg own, you know, most of the record. I had only written two songs on that, re- actually three songs on that first record. Uh, one of them, which just happened to be, you know, the, the, the single, but still they had the lion's share of the records. So I tried to kind of like, you know, ease them, soften the blow by telling them that. But David kind of pushed Sandy and Greg saying, you know, this guy's going to make more money than you, blah, 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 blah. He's not a team player. So, so they fired me for the band. So I was thrown out of Surrey officially. Oh. And then, uh, see, so nobody knows this story. You're like the first person <laughs> getting this shit. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, Bruno asked me to play in the Danger Danger record. So I was like, perfect timing, I said, because uh, I don't have my own band anymore. So I went down to Philly, and, and while I was doing that record, they were auditioning guitar players. And this is where it gets really funny, because it's like a little inside joke with me and Al Petrelli still to this day. We always joke about it. So they, they were auditioning guitar players, and they fired, finally hired Al Petrelli. Uh, and you know Al. Yeah. And that was it. And then they hired Jeff Glicksman to produce the first record. And Jeff's like, you know, he's, he's a real Southern boy. He came up and they started pre-production. Um, basically, this is the story I was told after, you know, all the wounds were healed. He just said, I like this guy. He can be in your band and everything. He goes, but for this record, I want the guy who played on those demos <laughs> in the story. So that was like the thing. And then they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't budge on it. And he wouldn't do the record unless I played on it. Uh, and, you know, to be honest with you, and I'm not patting myself on the shoulder, we spent a lot of time on those demos because we were trying to get a deal. Yeah. So there was a lot of really great guitar work. They just they weren't just like, you know, going in there and cutting a demo and seeing if people liked the song. We were like, we basically made, you know, we made a record. Um, it, well, we did four songs. We made like four really, really well-produced, you know, a lot of guitar tracks. Everything was well thought out. So it sounded like, he wanted it to sound. He was like, I'm not doing this record. I mean, I think in his mind, he was like, look, this guitar player is doing half the work for me. You know, the rhythm section is great. The guitar parts, I got no complaints about why do I want to start with somebody else. So, you know, I understood that. Hmm. So anyway, they called me up. Watching David Sonneberg called me up and he was like, so, uh, he, of course, he wouldn't tell me exactly what was up. It's like, Sandy wants to have a meeting with you. And I was like, okay, well, um, she has to come down to Philly or she has to wait like a month on the record. He's like, no, it has to happen now. I'm like, can I ask you what this is about? Because like, you know, you're kind of ordering me around as if I'm still in the band, which you fired me from. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, I was, look, I took great pride in having that one moment in life to throw it back in someone's face. And he was like, well, they may want you to play in a couple of songs. I'm like, that's really cool, David. I said, and I love her and Greg, but you know what, Quanazi, I don't, if it's a, if, if it's a handout thing that they feel bad, I don't need it. I'm in the middle of doing a record now anyway. That's why I can't come up. And um, he was like, well, when can you come up? I'm like, I might be able to come up uh, if we take a break on a weekend. Because we're only Philadelphia. So that's what happened. We took a break from the record um, for one day. Took a day off. I think Sunday. I, flew, I drove up. And it was, you know, a lot of stone faces. Nobody was. And it was kind of like, it, did you see Bohemian Rhapsody? Yes. It was literally the scene in the, in the manager's office. <laughs> it, I swear to God, it was just like that. Like me sitting by myself and the other three guys. <laughs> and uh, the only reason I'm, it's so fresh, I remember, so I just watched that movie again. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember this. <laughs> so they were like, you know, well, they told me the whole story about it. He's like, he wants you to play on the record. You're not in the band, but, you know, you need to tell us what you want, uh, want us to be paid, want to be paid to play on the record. So then I was like, okay, well, I got to be smart here because I really wanted to be in the band. I really loved them. Uh, so I was like, you know what? I shouldn't be paid any more than you guys are getting paid. And then, of course, Sandy was like, whoa, you're already getting paid more. 
production deal. I'm like, I know, but this is different. This is your record budget. And you're going to need all that money for, you know, to make the record. So I'm not going to bleed you dry because some producer told me that he wants me to play in the record. So whatever you're making, I'll do the same. And I think that kind of went a long way with them. And then, of course, as things go, during the course of making the record, we would just, you know, fell back into old habits and stuff. And then they were like, you got to be in the band. Huh. And I was like, I'm like, I got no problem with that. And then, then that's how the whole thing ended up being like that. But I actually was never in Danger Ditcher. Although, you know, of course, later on, I did a tour with them. Hmm. So, so Tony, who did they get to replace you in the band after you got fired? Al Petrelli. Oh, in Soraya? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, so they had Al, and then Jeff Glixman wanted you back. Right. Exactly. Okay, okay. Just, yeah, to make the record, yeah. Okay, um, was Al pissed? Yeah, of course he was pissed. And, and uh, you know, there was... <laughs> And it's like, we see each other, not a lot, but whenever we see each other, we always joke about those times. I'm like, dude, that was a million lifetimes ago. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's funny because him and I have always been like, the, you know, the two Long Island guitar players that back and forth is always some sort of like, you know, drama thing. And uh, it was just very funny that that happened with that thing. But I mean, look, I mean, he's obviously done really well. So he's, we're good friends. And then we laugh about this for Mm, yeah, he's done well in TSO over the last, what, 20 years? 24, I think. Wow, yeah. I saw him when uh, when Rocktopia this last year when we played uh, uh, on Broadway. He came to the show. Nice, nice. So when you, when you got into the band, uh, how many live shows did you do? Did you do a lot of live shows before you got the, got your record deal? Mm, no, actually the, the, the deal was done based off of the um, the demos. And if I remember correctly, we did a showcase at a studio that we were actually rehearsing at, and it's not there any longer, but it was a small studio up in the 50s. This woman, like, she turned her apartment into a studio. It was weird. Um, but we, I think we did, I think I remember correctly, we did a showcase there, but it was more like a formality. It wasn't really like, we were already signed because... You know, the demos were good, and of course, David Sonnebert's, you know, his his status in the record industry was not like, you know, people weren't going to say, well, I hope your band can play. It's like, he wouldn't be managing us if we weren't a good band. Hmm. So, yeah, it was straight into the studio, really, to make the record. Yeah, and were Polydor the only label that were looking at you guys? Do you remember hearing any, were, were any other labels sniffing around, like Warner Brothers or someone like that? Yeah, Warner Brothers was in, was in there, and uh, as well was I think Electra was in there. But David really wanted to be on Polygram because he had he had great relationship with um, Jim Lewis, who was the A and R guy back then. Uh-huh. And uh, and they just had, he had a very good relationship with him, and and actually it was you know Jim was is not just it was such an awesome dude, and he was a great A and R person because he kept he was one of the last people really who kept the fun in the music industry. Although, you know, we didn't, we were too stupid and naive to know it at the time. But all that fun was, you know, being created with money that we had to pay back. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was the rock and roll lifestyle, you know, cocaine, hookers, the whole bit. <laughs> <laughs> Jim was, Jim was like, Jim was very into that whole thing of like, you know, do it the right way because you never know if you're going to get to do it again. Yeah, yeah. So, Who's Sandy Linzer, who's credited as the executive producer, and he's he's co-writes on a lot of the songs on it. Yeah, so he was he was a uh, he is a writer. He wrote like you know he's still in the game. He wrote a lot of the stuff for the Jersey Boys show. I think he actually won a Tony for that too, arrangements and stuff like that. But he he was with them before me, and he was basically a songwriter. He's he's old school. I don't know if you're familiar with the Brill Building, um, but that's. Uh, Real Building is like um, uh, 1600 Broadway. That's where, like, back in the day, all the big songwriting teams were. It was like a factory. Those, uh, like, it just songs were coming out of there for Broadway shows, for, you know, Martin Hamish, who wrote up in there uh, at some point. Uh, Burt Backrack was up there. Just like Rogers and Hammerstein spent some time up there. Just like everybody worked out of the Real Building at one point or another. And um, and Sandy was one of those writers, so David reached. I mean, it, it's funny because it was it was you know it was the late '80s, so it was a little bit late to be reaching into that pool for songwriters. But he's a great songwriter. I mean, some of those melodies and some of those songs on the first record just beautiful. Hmm. Hmm. So, other than Jeff Glixman, 
were there any other names being thrown around to produce the record? Um, no, actually not, because I don't remember why we went with Jeff. I'm trying to remember why that was. At that point, I can't remember what he had done that I really was really impressed with, but I do remember we had a meeting with him first, and that was probably what sealed the deal because, as I said, he's just kind of like, he fit right in the mold. You know, our first record, we were all looking for a good time. Jim Lewis was right there to write the checks, our checks to do that. And Jeff was like straight up, you know, like let's set up a bar in the, in the, in the studio kind of guy. <laughs> we, we were, all, we were all for it. Like everything he said about making a record was probably like, a, you know, on the back burner was like, okay, we're going to have a good time. All right. Good. We're in. Mm. Uh, so that was kind of like you know the catalyst for that whole relationship. Yeah, was he more into capture, capturing the vibe of the band and not contributing to the songs? Absolutely. Like so. So again, the like the arrangements of the songs. This is what's different between album one and album two. The arrangements of the songs were identical from the what we wrote until what was on that record. He never. He he was a hands off producer. Rather, like really kind of wanted the band to just vibe and if the songs weren't good enough well then the songs weren't good enough we were just going to capture the magic um, but he never really said this part's not working that part's not working it was more about getting sounds and things like that and really you know us like discovering more about each other and discovering more about ourselves like while making the record hmm. was he was he a producer that liked you guys to play together live and capture what you record what you made on the floor or did you record all the parts separately Oh, no, no, all completely together. In fact, like that, St. Christopher's Metal and Love Has Taken Its Toll, not the acoustic guitar, obviously, but those two songs were complete live takes, solos and everything. Wow. Just your complete live takes, and then I went back in and overdubbed the acoustic, and then under the solo, I overdubbed a rhythm guitar. In fact, if you listen to St. Christopher's Metal, there is no rhythm guitar in the uh, in the solo. Hmm. And the solo is kind of almost not loud enough because it's... <laughs> it's, it's really funny. I love that solo, and it was that was about three o'clock in the morning, and like Sandy was like, "You never." It was. It's not much of a solo. It's pretty simple, but it's really heartfelt. She's like, "You're never gonna ever capture that again." I'm like, "I know. That's it. We're gonna have to just live with that." I'm really not crazy about the sound, but because I, I think for that song, I was using this uh, this little amp just to go through it, and that happened to be a take. And we were we weren't supposed to be recording it for real. We were supposed to maybe doing bass and drums if they were good. But mm. when we listened back to it, I was like, "That's kind of the song. That's kind of kind of it. We'll leave it, you know." And we just that was it. So he was definitely liked us recording together. Plus, you know, we were up at Bearsville Studios, and it's this you know iconic recording studio that so many hit records were made. And it was the whole vibe was just you know like we want to be in there. We don't want to leave. We don't want to leave the, the grounds unless absolutely necessary. Hmm. Do you remember, Tony, any of the record company people coming down and maybe critiquing what you were recording and saying, no, you got to like dumb this down a little bit or, or were they very hands-off for the first record? Kind of hands-off. Like, Jim Lewis spent a lot of time with us up there. So we did all the basic tracks up at uh, Bearsville and then we did all the overdubs in Austin, Texas. Jim was up, I think, the whole time at Bearsville. And his, you know, he had been up there with so many other bands, uh, which is, this whole thing is really funny because, like, my wife and I own a house in Woodstock now, and Bearsville is, you know, it's the next town. So I, like, it's the studio where I, this whole thing started is five minutes from my house. <laughs> and uh, and it's just, I'm and, and, the, and the restaurant that I'm about to talk about, the Bear Cafe, was, like, at the time, you know, like, one of the only um, places in town, but certainly, like, one of the best, and still is. And Jim would, like... Jim would just order like tons of food from there and just have it brought in instead of us going out and killing three hours at dinner. He would just like, you know, like banquets. And, and again, we're not at the time realizing that this is all coming out of our budget, <laughs> but it was, it was cool because like he, you know, he really, really nurtured the band to feel like, you know, this is a, this is a once in a lifetime experience. And I know that, you know, like when I made did the Danger Danger record, it was nothing like that. It was all way more calculated. Um, Bruno and Steve, especially Bruno, but Bruno and Steve, it was way more analytical about having a hit, and they were kind of analyzing like 
you know, everything all the bands back then were doing. And this is not a diss to them. It's just the way they like to make records. And, and Saray was the complete opposite. It was just like, just go in there and fucking play the song 20 times. We were like Van Halen. Let's just keep playing and playing it. And then somebody will tell us when they, when it's a great day. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't like, you should play this on the guitar. You should, you know, maybe you should tone it down here. Or you should, it was just like, if you didn't know what to do, you shouldn't be in the band. Okay. And, uh, we, we, we had some fun doing it. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Now it was, was it tough to get your songwriting into, in, in with Greg and, and Sandy's because when, when you look at the whole record, you you said yourself, you've only got a couple of co-writes on it. W- was that a tough right. enough to crack for you? It kind of happened accidentally. The first thing that happened is I wrote in, um, get you ready. That was the first one. We were in my apartment at the time and, um, they were stuck on that song. And I was like, well, what if you do this? You know, like, and then, um, they were like, Oh, that's actually a good idea. And then, and they kind of, you know, it, it kind of turned their heads around because they've been stumped on it for a long time. And the other thing that I actually never got credit on was I wrote the whole chorus in fire to burn, uh, not the lyrics, but the, all the music to it. Hmm. But it's like the guitar player who, uh, their old guitar player, Fred was also a writer on that song. And I mean, it's just the kind of thing you do when you're young and, you know, naive and you just sort of say, Oh, we're all good friends here. But that song also had no chorus. And I was like, you know, if you, and it wasn't going to make the record. And I, I kind of turned it around and rewrote the whole chorus and played it for savings. We loved it. But then they were like, you know, if we give you credit on it, then it's going to be split four ways. And poor Fred, he only has, you know, a third of one song on the total record. And I was like, you know what? Don't worry about it. Just, just, you know, it's fine. I don't need it. But it was, again, I think part of that was I was still, you know, working my way out of, you know, the whole being fired thing <laughs> and, 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 and healing the relationship. So, that may have been a part of it. It's too long ago to remember exactly, but that could have been part of it. Yeah. But then after the get you ready thing, um, we wrote one night away and that, that was my idea. I was like, look, we need a really ballsy guitar riff song. here. we don't have one yet. You got a lot of beautiful songs in here, a lot of really cool songs, but a lot of them are really kind of cool and spooky, like gypsy child. And, you know, St. Christmas metal. Uh-huh. I said, but we need a balls to the wall rock song. So I, I, on the spot, I just came up with that riff. And we wrote the song in like five minutes, the three of us. It was just, it was like instantly. And they were like, oh, this is so cool. I'm like, yeah, we need, everybody needs one of those on a record. And then the weird thing is in the middle of like writing that riff, I got kind of into the whole, you know, thing, the the way that song is written, it's all over an open A string on the guitar. And then uh, like two days later, I was just like messing around with that riff and I started playing what ended up being the main intro to Love Is Taking Us Toll. And um, I was a huge Far Enough fan. And I always loved, I don't know if you know that song by Far Enough, Love Is Taking Us Toll. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that was where the title came from. I was like, I always thought that was a really cool title. And I just, over that guitar riff, I just started singing it. And I called Sandy, I'm like, you got to come over here right now. And she's like, well, I said, just come over here. I said, I, I'm telling you right now, I think I may have written the first single. And she's like, uh, Greg, she's like, Greg can't come over. I'm like, I don't care. You got to come here right now. And she came over and like, I played her the chorus and she was like, Oh my God, this is so cool. And then, um, it was weird. If I, like, this is stuff I, I think about now. So there were records that were out at the time. There was a Van Halen record. Um, and I, I think it was OU812. Yeah. I'm not really sure. Yeah. That was, out in was a, that was out in 88. So it would have been that one. Yeah. Okay. So. There's a song on there and I can't remember what it is, but that's kind of where I got the idea for the for the verse, the broken down verse and the chord, the chords. And it's a little bit eddy. If you listen, if you think about the middle section in the Panama, when it, mm. when it breaks down mm-hmm. and those chords, the, the chords in that are kind of similar to the verse in Love is Taking This Toll. And then, of course, the um, the section, the, yeah, the, the, oh my, I can tell you what's up. It's, uh, what the hell is that? What's that? Uh, Van Halen song. It's <laughs> definitely from one of those songs on there. It's not the exact chords, but the feel of it. Okay. Um, and then, of course, the section going into the solo is straight up get the lead out from Aerosmith. Yeah. <laughs> like I did. That was like you know I was like oh I gotta I gotta I gotta take this is perfect for that. Okay. But but that song was like like literally we put it together in like a half an hour and we were so excited. Wow. She and I, we drove 
you know, we drove in my, in my Toyota to the city is back when you could park in the city and went with my acoustic and went straight up to Jim Lewis's office. And he's like, he's like, I, I, I got five minutes. I got to go to a meeting. I'm like, we, we only need one. And we just play him a verse in the chorus. And he was like, that's it. That's the first single. He's like, that's the first thing you guys, you guys have to like record that song first. So that was actually like, you know, when we're in the studio, they want us to record that first so they could play it for the label and get everybody excited. We're like, no, 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 no. We need to record this like towards the very end. So we can, you know, like, so that we're like truly in the spirit of like being up in Woodstock and recording and everything. And, and we're like so loose that it's going to have that feeling. That was what we did. We ended up recording that song at the very end of the whole thing. Mm. How did Greg feel when that was released as the first single? Because he's nearly, he's co-writes on nearly everything else on the album. He was cool about it. Like I said, Greg was such a sweet, easygoing dude. And I mean, I think he was mostly happy that things worked. Because him and I were really close. And we do the demos and stuff. We became super good friends, drinking buddies the whole bit. Uh, in fact, I lived at his house for a while. We just, you know, when that happened, he was ecstatic. He was just like, because I think in his head, you know, a, a undeniable single then have, they were going to go with, before that, they were going to go with um, Back to the Bullet, which is a great song, super great pop song, but it establishes the band as a different type of band. Every, it establishes the band as a soft pop band with a female lead singer, whereas Love Has Taken Its Toll, you know, cast a, a huge shadow of Sandy and like, you know, a whole different, yeah, just, it just, it, it, it made her more Pat Benatar than, uh, than, uh, I don't know, Ann Wilson. I shouldn't say Ann Wilson, but like, you know what I mean? Hmm. It was definitely, it, it, it's out of the box. People were like, who the fuck is that? You know? Mm-hmm. So did, did you record any extra songs for the, that never made it onto the record? Uh, yeah, we could. Uh, I have them too. <laughs> There's a song called Chain Smoking. There's a song called What's the Matter This Time? And what's the third one? God, I can't remember. Hold on a second. Well, you can actually you can actually remember the names of them, Tony. I'm impressed. Yeah, hold on. Well, you know, it's, when you write songs, it definitely it definitely stays with you. Um, oh yeah, Sleepwalker. That was the third one. Okay, so they were they were professionally recorded with Jeff in the studio. They were recorded without overdubs. The basic tracks were recorded. Okay. We never, when, we went, when we went to Austin, we never did the overdubs on them. Okay. Okay. So tell me about the song Timeless Love, Desmond Child track. Was that recorded at the same time he did the debut? Oh, no, no. That was recorded, um, geez, we were in London. We were touring in England, maybe not London, but somewhere in England. And we got the call about that. And they wanted just Sandy and I to come. And it was, you know, it was a little bit of a riff with the band, especially with Greg. He was like, you know, why, why is the whole band not going? And I'm like, Oh look, it's Desmond child. It's a big deal. It's like, you know, he's kind of like holds a lot of weight and, you know, we should just do this. It's not a big deal. And then, you know, we heard the song and it was, I'm like, I don't know what are we going to do with this? But, uh, I said, you, for you, it's great, Sandy. It's a great song for you to sing. I said, I don't know what I'm doing. And then the weird thing is when I got there, um, what's his name was there? Um, Steve Lukather to play guitar in it too. Okay. And, and Desmond, it's, I, you know, before that I'd known Desmond for a while because back when I played with Joel and Turner, we worked together for like a year, like recording song, writing, recording songs with Joe. So when I got there, I was like, so am I playing guitar? He's playing guitar. And Desmond's like, he's, he's like, you're both playing guitar. I'm like, I'm playing guitar with Steve Lukather on one song. He's like, well, we're just going to, you know, see what comes out of it. So this, like the, the guitar playing in there, some of me and some of him. Okay. And you said you're alluding there that some of the other guys were pissed with how all that went down. What did you make of the song, actually having to go and, and play on a song written by someone else? What was, were you frustrated at that? Not really, because, you know, it wasn't our record. It was a soundtrack, and it was, you know, it was something that was going to, if, look, if, this, if the soundtrack had become a hit, then it just puts the band name, you know, a little bit higher up the notch. The only thing about it that sucked is, you know, Sandy and I had to fly from England to L.A. for three days, a day to get there, a day to record, and, and you know, the day 
flying back and then go back and rejoin the tour. Wow. Uh, that wasn't so fun. No, that's, that's, that's nuts. <laughs> it was, it was nuts. And we were like wiped out. We got back there. We, we, the day we arrived, we arrived at six in the morning in London and we had a show in Manchester that night. Oh, and I remember we took the train up to Manchester. We would just beat to shit. I was like, I don't know how we're going to do this tonight. I said, I don't know how I'm going to do it. I can't even a million years how you're going to do it. And she was like, you know, but she's one of those people. She's like my wife. She could sleep anywhere. So she slept on the whole flight. She slept on the train. And she was fine. I was the one who was like worthless. <laughs> so, so, Tony, who did you go out on tour with to promote the debut record? We went by ourselves uh, oh. in the beginning. Okay. Uh, we went, we did like you know, small, uh, big clubs, a couple of small theaters. We did, uh, we did a, a long tour. Um, and then in September or late September, early October, we got the call that, um, we were going to be opening up for bad English. Okay. And we were like, and, and I was like, it was like, for me, it was like the, you know, the, the best possible scenario because I was a huge Neil Sean fan. I was a huge babies fan. Like, so like I knew, you know, all their shit. Uh, and so that's Jonathan Cain and John Waite. Plus I'm a huge John Waite fan from, you know, his solo stuff. So I was just like, plus, plus we, you know, we were listening to the, to the, you know, um, record, their record in, in, on the bus. And we were like, so freaked out that we're going to be going on tour with them. So that was like a, a great situation for us. And it was a good matchup of bands too. Mm. Did you get a lot of chance to hang with the bad English guys? Oh, you have no idea. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we okay. So this was back. In, like, you know, it's funny about this. Last year I was in. You no, know, two years ago I was in Davenport, Iowa, and um, I saw Journey, and went backstage and was talking to Jonathan Kane, but mostly to Neil. And I hadn't seen him since the that tour, and that was when he was still drinking. Um, back when we toured together, and he and I. We were like, I swear to God, we were like, like Derek and Clive was like, we're just inseparable. And just, he's, he's funny. He, when he's drunk, he's like Dudley Moore. Like, <laughs> I swear to God, he's like, he even sounds like when he talks, but we were, I mean, we became super, super close. And that it, and I have to give him credit. He started the relationship while we were in, I remember this, we were in Clearwater, Florida, first day of the tour. Christina Aguilera, a 16 or 17 year old Christina Aguilera was playing the show too. It was a festival. And, um, and Neil came on our bus and wanted to meet everybody. And then he came up to me and he's like, that's what I tell you, man. Cause I really love your guitar playing. And I'm just like, would you love my guitar playing? And I'm like, yeah, you're like, like a huge influence on like everybody I know who plays guitar. He's like, no man, but like a lot of the shit that you play, it reminds me of, what's that guy uh, until Tuesday? I'm like, oh yeah, Robert Holmes. And he goes, yeah. I said, I said, dude, I said, I know I'm a big fan of it. We just, we got on like a house on fire. And then we, you know, we, we became drinking buddies and just hanging out like every day. And then uh, the drummer was, um, uh, what was his name? Dean Castronovo. Yeah, Dean was like, Dean got on board with us. He started hanging with us. Wait, stayed mostly by himself unless he was trying to find Sandy because I think he's trying to bang her. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> we, would get that, we would get that every once in a while, like him roaming the hall. He'd be like, where's Sandy? I'm like, she's sleeping, dude. <laughs> but um, Jonathan Kane, super nice guy, but stayed by himself. But I, w I will tell you something really cool that happened during that tour. So one day towards like the sec, we took, okay, we took a break on the tour. And it was a Christmas break. And right before the Christmas break, I got into a conversation about, okay, so right before the Christmas break, we were in Burlington, Vermont, and we got a blizzard. We got snowed in. And their bus was toast because they didn't get um, shore power. We were on shore power from the hotel. So our bus, the generator was working. There was nothing in the hotel, like no food, no anything. It was, like, it was a blizzard. All we had was our bus and the alcohol and food that was in it. So we spent one night, me and Neil on the bus and the girl, Andrea Fry, I think her name was, she was the Kramer guitar rep. She had come up to see us and then she gets snowed in. So she was not spending the night and she did an interview. I, I really wish I had a copy of this. She did an interview of me and Neil hammered doing like uh, critiquing every guitar. She would bring a guitar player up and we would 
most say we thought of them. And then she's like, okay, um, no, re- no time for response. Favorite guitar player ever. And he goes, you can't say each other or yourself. And uh, he, I forgot who he said. And I said, Tim Pierce. And he's like, who the fuck is Tim Pierce? And I'm like, <laughs> and that was it. I was like, hold on. I said, you don't know Tim Pierce? And, and he was like, no, who is he? And I'm like, I said, dude, I'm about to rip your world wide open. So I started, you know, playing him all my favorite, you know, Tim Pierce solos on like Living in Oz and shit like that. And I'm just like, this guy is a freak. I go, if you can figure out what he's playing in this song, I said, I'll give you till the, when we resume back in the fucking, after the Christmas break, I said, I'll give you a hundred bucks. And, and he was just, <laughs> so we got back from Christmas and, and he had like, he he'd listened to like a bunch of stuff. And then I bought him the Rick Springfield box set. <laughs> huh? Just like, just because I was like, here, you need to listen to all this stuff. But the funny thing is Jonathan Cain had heard the conversation, didn't say anything. Turns out Jonathan was roommates with Tim Pierce and he had all these cassettes of instrumentals that Tim had left the apartment when they when like when he moved down. Put on a bus. She's like, I heard you're a Tim Pierce fan. He goes, She checked this shit out. These are like about two hundred instrumental pieces that he wrote. And and then me and Neil just kind of like OD'd on this shit. So then so then Jonathan's on the bus with us, right? It's a kind of it's kind of a long story, but it has a great ending. Uh-huh. So he's on the bus with us and, and we're hanging out, we're listening to Tim Pierce shit. And I'm like, it was like the first time Kane had really hung out with us. And I'm like, hey, can I ask you a question? And he's like, yeah. I go, how come you guys don't do any fucking baby songs? I go, even one. He's like, ah, John doesn't want to do it. I'm like, so that's it? I said, because, and I pick up my acoustic and I start playing like like all these different songs. And he's like, you know all this shit? I said, I, I, said, I am the hugest baby's fan. I said, some of these songs are like, they, they define my childhood. And um, the next day we go to sound check. And he's like, come in the dressing room. So I go in the dressing room and wait there. And he's like, and he hands me Neil's guitar. He's like, play postcard. And so I start playing it. And John, John fucking waits stuff. He's like, oh my God. He goes, I haven't thought about that song in ages. And he starts singing it. And all of a sudden I'm sitting there playing like baby songs with Wade singing. Sure enough, that night, like they went on stage. They did um, Back on My Feet Again as an encore. Uh, and then... The next day, they did Walk Away as an encore. I was like, this moment for me, I'm like, I can't believe I got these guys to play baby songs. <laughs> <laughs> so did, you, cool. did you know, Tony, that they were going to play the songs? No, I had no idea. They didn't say anything to me. I think they did it as a surprise to themselves and, and to their fans, but it was, I had the biggest surprise of all. Nice. I was just like, oh my God, this is so cool. Nice, nice. And then I called Bruno Ravel because Bruno is also a baby's fan. I was like, dude, you're not going to believe what happened tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, so so Tony, let's move on to uh, a little bit to the second record, When the Blackbird Sings. So when did Q Prime come into the picture? When did who, sorry? Q Prime, management. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> so this is the continuation of the publishing deal drama. So we were, we were doing, that I reckon was weird because we, like we didn't really write together. And this is what and this became like the demise of the relationship with Greg, which always makes me super sad. But like, you know, we had a lot of time off after the tour. So I was, Sandy was like, she'd like moved uh, out of her apartment. She was, I mean, out of her house into an apartment and she was spending time in LA with uh, Jackie King, the clothing designer. And she was hanging out there with her. Jackie introduced her to Brian Wheat and Tesla. And they started, you know, uh-huh. like hanging out, hanging out and stuff like that. Meanwhile, I'm home by myself in my apartment, completely bored out of my mind. So I just start re- like recording music, hopefully that she'll like something. And I, I recorded so many songs. And I just kept recording and recording and recording. And then I kept calling her up. I couldn't get a hold of her. And then, you know, next thing I know, she's like, I need to talk to you. I'm like, all right. And we sat down and she's like, look, Sonnenberg, like, you know, he's, he ripped me and Greg off in the beginning. Uh, he signed our publishing away. Uh, he took our publishing and we, you know, we have a very small part of it. Um, and Brian also tells us, tells me that I'm like, I'm like, who the fuck is Brian? <laughs> she's like, Brian Leach. She's like, you know, I told you about him. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, he told me that he Klein would sign us in a second. She said, I'm going to call David and, and tell him that if he doesn't 
turn my publishing back over to me and Greg that we're gonna, we want to fire him as manager. I'm like, Sandy, you can't fire him as manager. You have a contract. And she's like, you know, she was very, very rebellious. And I don't care. You know, it's easy for you to say because I said, you know, it's not easy for me to say. I said, we're all in this together. I said, I just, I think you're making a mistake. So the one thing about David Sonnenberg is, yeah, he may have taken your publishing, but that was something you allowed to happen. You know what I mean? But yeah. the thing is, I said, you got to realize if the sun rises and sets on this band at this moment with David Sonnenberg. I go, you can't say that about a lot of managers. I go, if you're even thinking about Cube Prime, we're going to be way at the bottom of the totem pole with those guys. They've got Leopard, they've got Metallica, they've got Tesla. I said, you know, what do you think we could fit in? Anyway, she wouldn't listen to it. She called David Bluff. David said, no way. And then she fucking fired him. So next thing I know, we got Q Prime managing us, but we also have a huge lawsuit. Of course, Sonnenberg is suing us. And now Polygram's lawyers have to, you know, defend us and, and, and settle this deal, which took forever. By the time we finished with Polygram and the whole thing between Greg and Sandy and Sonnenberg, I think we were $100,000 in legal fees in a whole. Wow. So, you know, now, of course, you're Q Prime. You're, you're trying to push a band, a band's record, and the label's like, well, you know what? Let's just see how the first single does. And that that doesn't happen, um, it may not be a second single. That's exactly what happened. Hmm. So did you want to work with Jeff Glixman again? No, I was excited to work with Peter Collins. Because as much as you may not believe this, because the style of music is done, I'm a huge Rush fan. Oh, me too. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> so, like, you know, when I found that he was a possibility, I'm like, oh, we got to do this. We got to do this. And um, I, w- I really wanted to work. I mean, look, I loved Jeff. I thought it was a great relationship. Um, and we definitely, but we needed to grow. And the new music like that I was writing was de- definitely less straight ahead rock and roll is a little bit more involved. And it's going to take somebody with a, you know, really cultured ear to sort of help us through it. And I thought he was the perfect guy having worked with, you know, with Rush. So mm-hmm. I was, I, we were all about it. And they actually, Sandy and Greg weren't that hip to it because when we met with Peter Collins, like a lot of the things he was saying were not what they wanted to hear. It was like, he was saying the way he likes to record, everything's recorded with a click, which is new, you know, to the band. Um, not only was it recorded to a click, but the, like it was methodical. The click was tuned. It was like, it wasn't a metronome, like a cowbell it was a piano click, which I had the luxury of having to have do for every song so that we'd know where we are, you know, in the place of the song in case it was just a drum over dub or some shit. Hmm. But, um, but you know, when we finally got in the studio with him, uh, it became, it was, it was clear to us that it was a completely different situation. Whereas you asked the question before, if Jeff was hands-on, Peter was, completely hands-on. I mean, he would, in the middle of the song, say, okay, right there, you lost me. And he's like, I need a new, a whole new section here. And, but he wouldn't tell us what to do. He'd just say, it needs a new section there. I don't care what you do. We need a new section. And we'd be like scratching our heads. And like, most of the time, I, I come up with it because uh, it, it just seemed like, whereas Greg's a really great musician, he sometimes had a hard time thinking out of the box like he was, he was one sort of path that he would take, and if that wasn't the right one, he wouldn't be able to shift gears. Mm. So, so Tony, I'm assuming it was Q Prime suggested Peter Collins because I think I believe they managed Queensrÿche as well, and he'd done a few records with them. Yeah. So he he was really the only guy on the list again for 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 this record. Uh, he was. He no, there was. Um, it's funny because we we had. Ed Thacker had mixed the first record and I really loved the way, you know, his record sounded too. He was somebody that I brought up, but it got shot down. <laughs> they were like, no, 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 no. You know, he dealing with like Peter and, and, and Cliff, they're just like, you, you can't really, you can't second guess them. So that was, you know, that was like, thanks kid, but we have the producer already. So, and as far as they're concerned, yeah, he was the only producer. Hmm. Was it deliberate that, this album went in a, in a much more guitar-oriented and heavier direction. Yeah, well, it was it was definitely what they wanted. They they wanted you know they wanted pyromania, they wanted hysteria. They they were looking for like you know that sounding record. Hmm. Um, but and we were always trying. Sandy and I were always trying to pull away from that 
and and stay a little bit closer to what the first array record was, but they they really really wanted that, and that started to drive the wedge between you know myself and and Greg, especially because Greg had written a bunch of songs too, but none of them got chosen um, because it was just it was too much of the same as like the first record. Mm. Can you remember one incident that like there's a straw that broke the camel's back and Greg just said, look, I don't want to be in the band anymore because he's credited on this as being an additional musician and not an actually a member of the band. Yeah, he, um, we were in, we first started pre-production, we were in uh, the Ninth Ward in New Orleans, which was super fun. And then we started doing the record. We were in Bogalusa, way the fuck out in the sticks across Lake Pontchartrain in the middle of nowhere. And, Greg was not needed on so many days and he would come to the studio and come to the studio. And then like, I just remember it was, it wasn't like a big, huge announcement. He was just like, look, I, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to stay here. You know, maybe you guys can do the record without me and I'll just, I'll just do my keyboard parts in the New York. And we were like, no, 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 no. So I, I got a sense that it was leading that way. But then, you know, we finished the record. We decided we were going to go on tour and uh, he was, super excited about it. And then I think he realized that there really wasn't much for him to play. And Sandy just called me and she's like, Greg doesn't want to do the tour. He quit. And I was like, that's it. Just like that. I mean, and he just, he didn't want it. And it's kind of like, and it didn't, wasn't really a big event. He just, it kind of trickled down. It became obvious. I felt terrible too, because like we still needed a keyboard player. Yeah. But, um, we ended up doing that tour. Like first Greg did a, I think he did a little bit of it with us and then he just bailed. And then it was hard to do with just two guitars because it wasn't it wasn't what we were supposed to sound like. Hmm. So Seducer, I believe, was the first single from this. Um did was, did you know when you wrote that 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 was yeah, I've got the single this time again, like Love Has Taken Its Toll? No, we had no idea. We were stuck for a single. We had no idea what the single was. We were looking for another Love Has Taken Its Toll. And we were really, really trying to capture you know something like that but the difference was okay so sandy had gotten really into like the bible in between records so you know a lot of the stuff that a lot of the references and the lyrics are very biblical on the second record uh-huh. it was very good it was very hard to get her to write something that was just you know balls to the wall so she wanted things to have deeper meanings so you know a lot of the stuff that i even sent her was that was too like similar to the first record that would have required that kind of lyric. She's like, no, I want something to be a little bit more, you know, like spiritual and stuff like that, which is why a lot of the stuff has a lot of, you know, interesting chord changes and stuff on the second record. But then we were watching this movie, uh, the, the house that we were staying in, in Bogalusa, there was like a bunch of videos that were just in there. And there was this movie about teenage suicide, uh, and drugs. And, um, we watched this movie and we were kind of fascinated by it. And that opening line of seducer is actually is from the movie. It's a kid standing on a bridge about the, you know, contemplating jumping off. That's how the movie opens. And with that dialogue and, uh, only it's a little bit, obviously it's longer in the movie. Uh, and, he, and in the movie says, you know, the hardest part of our flying is having to come back to the fucking round. Uh-huh. Um, and we watched that movie and I'm like, we should, we need to write a song about this is too cool. So we were at, we were at dinner and we meet, the whole band was there. It was a funny thing. Greg was there. Chuck was there. I was there. Uh, Barry was there with no instruments. We talked our way through the entire thing. <laughs> like, I literally sang the, the guitar chords and we, we wrote it over dinner and, and then it started to really become, when we got in the studio, it started to become a thing. I'm like, Oh, this is kind of a cool song. And then we used some of those sound bites from the record in the, in the middle part where they're interviewing mothers about, uh, you know, the kids and stuff like that. And mm. it was cool because that was a very Peter Collins thing to do, you know, yeah. tricks like that. Now, you but s- even when the song got released, I, I, I still felt like this is not the single that we, we should have. We should have something way cooler. Way, not cooler, way more obvious. Mm. But yeah, there's only one real ballad on it. It's the very last track. Everything else is kind of this slow brooding rocker. Some epic right. songs. Um, there's no real standout single on it. Yeah, you're right. It, it doesn't. Yeah, they're very. It's very epic record as a record, but there's no standout single. Hmm. Although I love like "Bring Back the Light," I love, and uh, uh, "When You See Me Again," I love those songs. Yeah, "White Highway" is uh, a brilliant song. "White Highway," yeah, "White Highway." That song is about Greg. Hmm. Like he was, you know, he was going. Like he started going 
deep, deep, deep into, you know, like drug problems when the whole thing became obvious that he was being sort of phased out. Hmm. So you, you said there, Tony, that there was three songs on the first record that you didn't finish. Were any of these brought to Peter for the second record? No, we were, I don't think we wanted to. We just kind of moved forward. Hmm. So who do you think you, who did you tour with on, on the second record? Can you remember? Um, yeah. What was the Badlands? <laughs> oh, Jakey Lee's Jake, band. Yeah, the Jakey Lee band. Wow. Yeah. Amazing band. I know, but he was a dick. Was it? Was <laughs> he? Yeah, at least to, to us he was. Okay. He was just, I don't know. He, he just, I don't know. He just wasn't, it, it's, it, was, it was a bad experience for us. It felt like we, we really felt like an opening band, whereas with, with, you know, with Bad English, we never felt like an opening band. We felt like we were on tour together. Okay. Did, did you get to meet, to talk to Ray Gillen much? Yeah, he was way nicer than Jakey. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and, and I'm thinking was it Greg Chason and Jeff Duncan? That was probably the rhythm section. Mm-hmm, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So that was that in the U.S. Uh, yeah, just really kind of big clubs like Hammerheads and all those big clubs like that. Okay. Okay. So, wh- why do you think the band split up then? In the end, was is it is grunge a simple answer? No, it's not. Um, it was. I was kind of really pissed at that. You know, Sandy had blown the whole thing with Sonnenberg and we got we got dropped by Polygram after the second record didn't do well and it seemed like a very long uphill battle to try and get signed again and I just I started another band with a, a guy that I met and um, I don't know I couldn't really connect with Sandy anymore she was off in Brian Wheat World and they she just didn't seem like she really wanted to put the work in okay. so I had to just like yeah so I ended up uh, just severing the whole ties and we didn't speak for a long time but we speak now okay okay is there any word on that you writing new music together in fact there is okay because i've heard people yeah. a, a lot of people the re, one of the reasons i'm talking to you tony is, is i do every so often i'll do these interviews and i'll try and get guys on to talk about albums in the past and i've had a ton of people ask me if you ever get someone from Surreya on ask them are they going to do any new music i've sent sandy about six tracks out of which she has two finished and I was hoping to have you called me, but I sh- I'm supposed to get them this week. Okay. Um, she's got two songs that are done. And when I committed to actually making a record because I'm like, listen, not like it was back then, you know, I could make the entire record here and then I could fly out to LA and then, um, we could do vocals there. We don't have to be in a giant studio anymore. Uh-huh. She's she seems she's in a way better place to do it now. Kids are more grown, and she's you know she's. I think she was worried for a while also that her voice wasn't you know going to hold up, and now she's been singing every day. She okay, great, good, good. So so which of the two albums is your favorite? Mm, definitely the first one. I you know like there's things about the second record that I just absolutely love, but the first one has moments of it that uh, just I don't know they remind me of like. It just remind me of what that band really was. The second record to me is it, it's a whole different animal. It's kind of like a hybrid of what we were and what Q Prime was. Okay. So I've got one final question, Tony, before I leave you go. As the '90s progressed for for probably for you and a lot of guitarists from that from that era, were you kind of ostracized from because of the area you came from that you weren't really taken seriously as players? I wasn't because I. I started playing with Joan Jett um, and I did like five years with her and I wasn't really that concerned with what was going on in the guitar world. I was like, super happy to just be playing, like touring with her and, you know, like it was, you know what I mean? I, I was so preoccupied with that whole part of my life that I didn't have time to really think about what was going on in grunge and stuff like that. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just wondering because there's a lot of, a lot of players from that era use one, Nuno's another one. I know Joel Hoekster now plays with Cher. Um and they've all branched off to play with all these high profile acts. But I'm I'm wondering in the nineties were were you guys like by by the industry ignored to write with pop people because oh yeah they're hair metal. We don't really want them. Probably to write for sure. Um because there was definitely a whole new, you know, sense of urgency in the music 
and, and, and hair metal was all about fun and glam and stuff like that. But it's funny how, like, you know, that goes a long way now because a, the experience that some of the people have and also what they can bring to it. Like, so I hired, you know, for Rihanna. Yeah. I was, I was going to ask you that. Yes. And, and it was because of that exact reason. I'm like, you know what? So she's like, she's really into hard rock too. And we started talking about stuff and oh, hold on a second. And I was basically like, if I could get this guy to do this, I go, this is kind of what you need. You need another fucking rock star on stage. Yeah. And she was like, I showed her videos and stuff. I'm like, he's a shit. I'm telling you. And uh, she she loved it. So I think it, it adds credibility too. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, now this now that we're in this decade, like we're bringing back some of the best people because it, it, nobody plays guitar anymore. You know what I mean? It was like, especially back then, like, you know, the 2010, 12, stuff like that. Everything was fucking just keyboard based music or there was no, there's no flash of the rock stars, just pop singers. Hmm. Mm. So listen, Tony, you've given me way a lot of time here. I'm really appreciate it. Um, do you no want to worry? Get... I'm sorry it took so long. No, no. Hey, listen. This, I love. I love when guys can remember everything, and your memory is really, really good. Do you want to give out all the social media sites where uh, people can get in touch with you? Uh, yeah, I'm basically really Instagram and um, it's just Tony Grunel Music, and also on Facebook. Okay. So, so what have you got coming up for the rest of the year? Um, doing this Rocktopia show that I do. Oh, I I had um. Oh, what's the guy's name? One of the singers for the show on Broadway. I had him on. Rob? Rob Evan. Oh, I, yeah, I interviewed him for uh, for the show when they did it last year. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so we're, doing, we're getting ready to do that again. Were, were you uh, going to do it in Broadway again? No, no, no. I'm not doing Broadway yet. Uh, that's going to be, I think, maybe in the fall. We're doing a tour of the States. Oh, nice. Well, actually, we're gonna be, we'll be up in Boston, my friend. Oh, when? Yeah, hold on a second. Shit, I, I almost forgot to tell you that. <laughs> um... Give me one second, put you on speakerphone so I can get to my computer. Right. Sure. Yeah, you got to come to the show. No, I, I, Rob Rob actually invited me down to New York, but I couldn't get there. We, we could have done this interview in person. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Boston is May 4th. May 4th. May 4th. What's the venue? The Schubert Theater. Schubert. All right. I'm, I'm just writing that down. Well, Tony, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, likewise. I, I love doing these things. It gives me a turn, the chance to talk without my wife telling me, all right, you've been talking too long. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Tony. Well, I'll leave you go back to your wife then. She, she's shouting all at right. you. All right. Appreciate it. Have a good rest of the day, okay? You too. All right. I'll see you in May, Tony, okay? You got it. All right. Bye. All right. Big thanks go out to Tony Bruno for coming on board and uh, talking a long, long chat with Richie all about uh, some of his own personal history, as well as, of course, the uh, the target focus of the episode is Richie really wanted to dig into uh, the two different Soraya albums, a couple of his favorite albums, and he's just digging in. And uh, again, a lot of great information from Tony. And obviously, Richie talked to a little bit about Tony being out on the road with Rocktopia. So just a reminder to everybody, if uh, you want to go out and catch that show, you can go to rocktopia.com. And all the tour dates are up there as well as links to get tickets. The tour kicks off on May 2nd in uh, Port Chester, New York. Then uh, actually heads here to Boston and goes all the way through until right now, at least May 23rd, out in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So again, if you want to find out more about that, you can head over to rocktopia.com. So next week, I can tell you exactly what we're doing next week, and that is that we are going to actually be talking to Sandy Soraya. That is right. She hasn't really spoken to anybody for a long time, but uh, she has uh, come on board, and you will get her whole side of the story behind what happened with the band as well as what she's up to now. So you want to get in on that, then you're sure to be back here again same time next week to hear from uh, Sandy herself about all things Soraya. In the meantime, be sure to keep up with us at focusonmetal.net as well as focusonmetal.blogspot.com. The always ubiquitous Facebook, Richie is always up on there. And you can also keep up with us on Twitter. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, as always... Have yourselves a great meta week, and until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on metal! Everything, everything.